0: Well, these are busy days at ACAC because they're filled with what we believe are spirit-ordered faith initiatives and the inevitable challenges that go with faith initiatives. And that's why this month, through various media outside of the weekly teaching, we have attempted to clarify where we believe God is leading us and how we believe God wants us to get there. And I hope we've communicated well, but I'm under no illusion that we have. I like the quote from George Bernard Shaw, who said, the greatest hindrance to communication is the assumption that it's actually taking place. So, we may have clarified things for you, or we may have muddied the waters. If the latter is true, please contact Pastor Blaine, Pastor Ross, or me. Or me, okay? Don't make those assumptions. And let us know of your questions and your concerns. Because this is not a cult where we call for unthinking obedience. This is a faith community where everybody's concerns and opinions should be respected. Today I'm pausing our study of the ancient book of Daniel... And what it has to say to us about keeping faith in a corrupt culture. Because I want to conclude our month-long focus on vision. And as I do, today I want to focus on two things. I want to focus on what God means when he says remember. And the importance of remembering. And then I want to focus on what it is God wants ACAC to remember. And towards that end, I'm going to read a simple narrative text that is the foundation of the marching orders God gave us decades ago and that I believe He wants us to remember. It's found in Matthew, the 14th chapter, the 35th verse. And Matthew recorded this. When the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent word into all that surrounding district and brought to Him... All who were sick. I'm entitling today's teaching, Looking Like Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, I can't do what you've called me to do apart from the empowering of your Holy Spirit. And we can't understand your word, let alone apply it, apart from the empowering of the Holy Spirit. And so, Father, we pray, Spirit of the living God, fall fresh. Fall fresh on me for proclamation. Fall fresh on all of us for understanding and for application. We're not here to gain information. We're here to experience transformation. There's a big difference. We want our encounters with you through your living word to change the way we think and change the way we live, change the way we see you and see ourselves and see others. So fall fresh on us. We pray in the name of Christ and for his glory. Amen and amen. And as we listen for God's voice together this morning, may the Lord be with you. God's Word makes it abundantly clear that the one biblical word we must never forget is the word remember. It's found over 160 times in Scripture, and it's repeated for good reason. Both the present and the future are shaped in large part by what we choose to remember, how we remember it, and how well we remember. That's true for congregations, and it's also true for individual followers of Jesus. Now, the remembering that God calls for is much more than a spiritual version of jeopardy. It's much more than rummaging through the mental files in an attempt to find some piece of trivia or information. When God calls us to remember, he's calling us to act in ways that our remembering requires. Now, let me explain that by way of an illustration. God often calls us to remember how he has graciously forgiven us. But when he calls us to remember how he has forgiven us, he wants us to remember so that we will then forgive others. As he has forgiven us. So the act of remembering is a call to action that is consistent with that remembering. All that to say in Scripture, the opposite of remembering is not forgetting, the opposite of remembering is failure to act. So when God calls us to remember, it's relevant, it's action oriented. Scripture also makes it clear that what God continually emphasizes, Satan continually attacks. And he seeks to influence what we remember, to influence how we remember. He encourages us to remember the things that we should forget, like our past sins and the sins of others against us. He encourages us to forget the things that we ought to To remember. And he does both of those things because Satan has a good memory. He remembers that when truth is forgotten, blessing is forfeited. Notice, forfeited. It's not taken away from us by force, it's forfeited by us when we fail to remember. Now, given the importance and the meaning of remembering, I want to close our month-long focus on vision by reminding you how we came to be such a busy and sometimes confusing place. And you know, it's not wrong for the church to be busy and sometimes confusing. One of the least confusing places in the city of Pittsburgh are its cemeteries. There's very little confusion in a cemetery. Everybody knows their place and they keep their place. (laughs) It's not confusing because there's no life there. Where there's life, there's confusion. That's a part of being alive. Where there's life, there's busyness. So it's not bad to be busy and sometimes confusing. So we want to remember how we got to be busy and confusing and we want to remember what we need to hold on to if we want to stay that way. 35 years ago, God called me to pastor here when the congregation was dwindling and discouraged with a bad reputation and a complete lack of credibility in the immediate community. Many people suggested ACAC should close or move. Many others confidently predicted it would close, or move. I was uniquely positioned to lead. I had no training (laughs) and no experience in urban multicultural ministry. I grew up in Butler, PA, a yinzer. And I grew up in Butler when everybody in Butler essentially looked like me, white, middle class, and not thinking about anything else. So I felt totally inadequate. But I want to remind you, when you're following Jesus, feelings of inadequacy aren't always a problem. In fact, they can prove to be a blessing. Because feelings of inadequacy can set the stage for what I like to call holy desperation and dependence. Not despair, not hopelessness, no, holy desperation. The conviction that unless a holy God reveals what you are to do and empowers you to do it, you have zero chance of success. Holy dependence, unless God leads, unless God does it, it ain't got to happen. And holy Because it's grounded in the conviction that a good and loving God will reveal what we're to do and will empower us to do it. It's the opposite of despair. Well, in my holy desperation, I said, Lord, what are we to do? I didn't read church growth literature because it always emphasized parking, parking, parking. We had 30 some parking spots emphasize state-of-the-art facilities, location, location, location. Well, that was a depressing read, so I didn't even go there. So I said, Lord, what are we to do? And you know, God answered, because God always answers. We may not like his answer, we may not be positioned to hear his answer, but God always answers. Look, the problem isn't that God doesn't answer prayer, the problem is he does, and we sometimes don't like the answer. And when God answered, he answered me by leading me to that simple narrative passage I read a few moments ago. But he made it leap off the page and stick to my soul. He said, if ACAC will begin to look like Jesus, people will come and they'll bring their broken friends with them. So here's your strategy. Look like Jesus in the hood and people will come. Now, that sounds pretty simple. It's anything but. Because looking like Jesus is not automatic for a congregation. And there's a reason why looking like Jesus is not automatic for the individual men and women who make up a congregation. I'm going to suggest that you have probably had days when you didn't look much like Jesus. And if you deny that, I'll ask your husband or your wife or your children... <laughs> and they'll probably quickly shoot down your illusion. We don't individually always look like Jesus, so collectively we don't always look like Jesus. The reality is, history tells us, Scripture tells us, the church often looks like anything but Jesus. Let me give you some examples. Sometimes the church looks like a culture club, a group of people who essentially look alike, think alike, and act alike, a gathering of sameness that becomes protection against the humbling, very inconvenient challenges of engaging people and perspectives different than our own. Sometimes the church looks like a museum of ancient history where all of the focus is on some past great movement of God that ended decades ago. Sometimes the church can look like a dysfunctional family, complete with fussing and fighting and division and control issues and everybody playing the God card for their opinion. Sometimes the church looks like a religious infomercial complete with a slick salesman, exaggerated claims, empty promises, and blessing offers that are only good for the next half hour if you ante up the cash. Sometimes the church can look like a monument to a human leader, a corrupted leader, where total unquestioning alignment with his or her mandates is what proves your devotion to God. Sometimes the church can look like a political party at prayer. And that's an increasingly popular form of idolatry. Looks like a place where Jesus serves the partisan politics and positions of the faithful and where they are led to believe that their unwarranted confidence in human leaders and human solutions really isn't idolatry when in point of fact it absolutely is. So looking like Jesus is far from automatic. Now, if you're gonna look like Jesus, you've gotta know what the Jesus looked like. We know he was dark skinned as a Jew in that part of the world. There are actually some Roman records that suggest he had red hair. I'd like to think that's true. Because I grew up having people say, I'd rather be dead than red in the head. And it it would be nice to find Jesus someday with a little tint of red hair. But hey, I'm gonna follow him whether he's got a fro or a buzz, it doesn't matter. So I asked the Lord, what did Jesus look like? And he gave me six things from Scripture. Here they are. First, Jesus was a friend of sinners. Say friend of sinners. Friend of sinners. Now notice, he wasn't a friend of the world. He didn't embrace the false belief systems and values and idolatries and priorities of unbelieving humanity. What he did is he befriended the people who were suffering under their acceptance of the world's thinking and the world's values and the world's priorities. He befriended them because he knew his engagement with them would help them entertain for the first time the thought that a perfect, just, and holy God would actually like to love them and restore them rather than reject them and judge them. In a church that looks like Jesus, the members will maintain friendships with people who aren't yet in the kingdom where they can show them the love and the grace of God. They'll engage them without embracing their false ideologies and their idolatries because they know that people often have to experience God's love and acceptance in another human being before they can accept it in a God they have not seen. And that leads directly into the second thing God showed me. Jesus was full of grace and truth. And note the order. Unless Jesus was answering his political and religious opponents and attackers, he always let grace lead the way in his interactions with people. When they laid a trap for him based around a woman who had been caught in adultery... After he had marvelously reversed the tables and put them in an awkward position, he led with grace. He said to her, I don't condemn you. Then he followed it up with truth. Go and sin no more. You don't have to find your significance between the sheets any longer. I can give you something that will liberate you from that. Grace, I don't condemn you. Truth, you can go and live differently. Jesus always led with grace. Because Jesus understood people have to be able to imagine they can live differently before they'll embark on a journey to do so. And grace fosters that imagination. It disarms the fears and the anger and the doubt and the pain that keep far too many people at arm's length from a good and loving God and His truth. Now, I'm emphasizing this because as attacks on God's Word become increasingly frequent and vocal in our culture, we're tempted to reverse the grace-truth order. We place our arguments for truth at the front end of our witness rather than at the back end. But that leaves people with the impression that God will only forgive them if they believe the right stuff, when in reality, it's the acceptance of God's amazing grace that enables us to believe the right stuff. It's hard to believe the truth until you've experienced the grace. A church that looks like Jesus will lead with grace. I remember hearing the story of a church in Vancouver, Washington that had a wonderful alcohol addiction recovery ministry. One day, a young lady came to the pastor and said, I'd like to be a part of your recovery ministry, but I don't want any of that God stuff. Will I be welcome? And he said, absolutely it would be our privilege to serve you now he could have led with truth and said well unless you get the god stuff all you got to do is put a band-aid on your addiction and a new addiction will crop up to replace it because what you're really hungering for is god and all that was true but he just said you're welcome it would be our privilege well you know the rest of the story you know how stories like this always end in church <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, but this is true She got the God stuff. She became a devout follower of Jesus because they led with grace. They led with grace. Next thing God showed me is that Jesus was a servant. He made it clear, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve you guys even to the point of laying my life down for you. Now in this culture, looking like Jesus requires us to recognize and renounce the twin idolatries that drive American culture. Individualism, and consumerism. Actually, there are three. Racism is the third, but we're only got to focus on the first two, individualism and consumerism. Individualism is essentially the worship of self through self-interest and self-protection and self-enhancement. CONSUMERISM IS THE RELENTLESS SEARCH FOR SOME MEANING AND PURPOSE IN LIFE THROUGH OBTAINING POSSESSIONS AND EXPERIENCES. TOGETHER, INDIVIDUALISM AND CONSUMERISM REDUCE JESUS TO THE STATUS OF A SERVANT TO OUR SELFISHNESS. THEY REDUCE THE CHURCH TO A BUSINESS, AND THEY REDUCE BELIEVERS TO FICKLE, DEMANDING CONSUMERS. A church that looks like Jesus will call its people to find their fulfillment the only way and the only place that fulfillment can be found, by pouring out their lives for others, by serving human needs. It will produce servants, not consumers. The fourth thing God showed me, Jesus was a voice for justice because justice always needs a voice, HE REMINDED HIS FOLLOWERS THE CONVERSION OF HEART THAT change THEIR RELATIONSHIP WITH GOD WAS ALSO MEANT TO CHANGE THEIR BEHAVIOR AND CONDUCT IN SOCIETY. HE MADE IT CLEAR HE HAD NOT COME TO ABOLISH THE PROPHETS' REPEATED CALLS FOR SOCIAL JUSTICE. HE HAD COME TO ENABLE THE CHURCH TO FULFILL THEM. THE GOSPEL HAS A SOCIAL DIMENSION. The word justice is a word of attack and addition. It attacks those things that destroy lives in the fabric of a community, and it seeks to add the things that bring God's shalom. From preaching of the gospel, to job creation, to education, to adequate housing, to health care. A church that is a voice for justice, will shut down nuisance bars and open youth foundations and counseling centers and refugee assistance ministries. It will help the poor and the powerless. Growing up in church, I often heard it said that there's a difference between knowing about Jesus and knowing Jesus, that you're only righteous when you know Jesus. Well, Scripture tells us in Proverbs that the righteous are concerned for the rights of the poor. And in Jeremiah, God himself tells us that to know him is to be a voice, is to plead the cause of the needy and act on their behalf. Now, before moving to the next look like Jesus point, let me remind you of the importance of balance in this area. Just as a passion for personal holiness is deficient without a passion for justice... A passion for justice is deficient without a passion for personal holiness. To use the language of the day, there is more to being spirit-filled than being woke. The pursuit of justice is not a substitute for the pursuit of holiness. It is always easier to do good than to be good. God wants both. And the pursuit of justice must be consistent. The same scriptures that compel us to denounce white supremacy also compel us to speak about the sanctity of black and brown babies in the mother's womb. And we must never forget that the greatest injustice of all is the fact that some of us have heard the gospel thousands of times while a significant portion of the world's population has never heard it once and isn't even familiar with the name of Jesus. That's the injustice that has eternal Implications, And if we neglect that to focus on the visible injustices in our culture, we are addressing secondary issues and missing the biggest issue of all. A church that looks like Jesus will be personally righteous and a stubborn, consistent voice for justice, and it will speak in humility, not virtue signaling superiority. I am growing increasingly tired of people who are preaching their enlightened status as those who are champions for justice while the smell of arrogance is all over them. That's not Jesus. The next thing God showed me was that Jesus was a barrier breaker because sin erects false barriers between people. Sin divides. God unites. And Jesus gave hints of his intents early on. His his genealogy was scandalous. It contained notorious sinners, women, Gentiles, Canaanites, unheard of things in the Jewish community. He launched his ministry. He headquartered his ministry in despised Galilee of the Gentiles. He embraced all kinds of people. He crossed racial barriers, gender barriers, social barriers. His vision was multi ethnic, multicultural. That's why he turned over the tables in the temple. It wasn't because people weren't praying, they prayed 24 7. It's because too many people were excluded from from prayer because of their gender or their ethnicity. The church that looks like Jesus will break the false barriers we all too often encounter in our culture, the barriers erected by human pride and sin. And they will address those barriers with humility, not with hatred. The last thing God showed me, Jesus was totally reliant upon the Holy Spirit. Isaiah predicted that when Messiah comes, he won't make his decisions based on what his eyes see or his ears hear. He will be totally spirit-led. Jesus affirmed that. He didn't begin his public ministry until the Holy Spirit came upon him at his baptism. Then he was immediately led by the Spirit to be tempted. And from that point on, he said, I only say what I'm told to say. I only do what I'm told to do. If Jesus couldn't minister without the leading of the Spirit, we'll never minister without the leading of the Holy Spirit. A church that looks like Jesus will know the difference between human effort with a prayer tagged on at the end and things that are initiated by, guided by, and empowered by the Holy Spirit. A.W. Tozer, a great prophet, Alliance pastor, said 40 years ago before he passed into glory that if In the early church, the Holy Spirit had suddenly left. 95% of what they were doing would have stopped, and everybody would have known the Spirit was gone. But he suggested in the modern American church, if the Holy Spirit were to suddenly leave, 95% of our activities would continue and hardly anybody would know he was gone. There is a difference between doing your best stuff and following the lead of the Holy Spirit. Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit. The only opinion that counts in this place is the opinion of the Holy Spirit. God only blesses what he initiates. Martin Luther King Jr. affirmed the looking-like-Jesus mandate that God gave to me. He did it in these words, quote, People are often led to causes and often become committed to great ideas through persons who personify those ideas. They have to find the embodiment of the idea in flesh and blood in order to commit themselves to it, End quote. They've got to see Jesus before they can entertain the thought of following Jesus. And what God affirmed through the words of Dr. King, God has affirmed through his living eternal word. And God has affirmed here. Because as this discouraged band began to repent and renounce and seek and listen and humble themselves, God got to work and produced incredible results. And if we'll continue to look like Jesus and remember our marching orders, he'll continue to do the work. And it will be awesome. If you've got to be part of church, it ought to be awesome. It ought to be awesome. And God's capable of awesome if we remember who we are and what we're to be. God bless you.